We are going to be back in the book of Revelation. I invite your attention back to chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit of a situation that I, that I encountered when I was a child. I, I played on some different sports teams uh, as a kid, mainly uh, my favorites were basketball and baseball. But one particular year, I had some friends that, that talked me into playing on a soccer team with them. And uh, our team name was the Fury. And we, this was Friendswood, Texas, okay? So we were the Fury. And, uh, and I thought that was a great name for a, for a, for a team. And I, I wore my jersey to school and, and didn't realize how many poor readers we had in my elementary school because I kept getting called furry all day long. And I mean, I didn't, didn't just hear that like once or twice. I heard it all day long. They kept calling me furry. And I decided at that point I would never wear that shirt, that jersey back to school again, right? None of us like to be outcasts. None of us like to, to and of course, that was in good nature, just poking fun, right? But, but really, there's something about us where we don't want to be the person on the outside. We don't want to be the one that's being mocked or ostracized. And today, we're going to be reading about a church that is, is, is more than just something out of, out, of, out of humor and fun. They, they were being afflicted and persecuted to, uh, to a point in which there was, uh, there was even some who gave their life for the cause of Christ. We are in a sermon series right now called Dear Church, and we're looking at the seven letters written to seven churches, seven local churches, in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to look at two of them, and there's a similar theme where both churches are called to stand firm. The first church that we'll be looking at today in Smyrna, they were a suffering church, and the Lord Jesus gave them a word to stand firm, even in a time of affliction. And then the next church is in Pergamum. And they are going to uh, be given a letter to stand firm in the face of compromise, because there was a, a, a serious issue of a, of a compromising church that was developing there. And so today, I think we'll be able to look at both of those letters, both of those topics, and see, yes, they have principles for us as well today as we think about what it means to stand firm. To stand firm as a church family, the Fellowship of Wildwood, but to stand firm as individual believers who, who try to navigate the, the, the difficulties of this life and to do so with a faith in Christ that is consistent and steadfast. In Revelation chapter 2, we pick back up in verse 8. And we see that these, of course, are the words of Jesus given to the Apostle John while he was on the Isle of Patmos, and, and then from there were given to seven local churches. And again, the first one is Smyrna. He says this, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say, they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So some striking words as we begin the letter. We'll read the, the, the rest of it here in just a few minutes, but let me give you the first point today, and it's this. Stand firm. Don't give up during times of persecution. And we're going to be seeing what that meant then and what that means for us today. To begin, let's look quickly at the map. You'll see there that we're looking at seven churches that are in what is now modern-day Turkey. You can see the Isle of Patmos, which is just off the coast of Turkey there in red. That's where John was located when he received the great revelation 
that then would be communicated. And uh, we were last week in the city of Ephesus, and now Smyrna is just north of there. It is, uh, if you look at a modern map, it's, it's modern-day Izmir, Izmir, Turkey. And of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, it's the only one that, that still exists and is still populated today. Smyrna means myrrh. Maybe you recall the gifts that were given to, to Christ at his birth, one of them being myrrh. It's known as a balm or a perfume, and it's something that was indeed a product from, from that town of Smyrna. And uh, Smyrna was a coastal town with a, with a large harbor, a lot of industry, a lot of, of, of commercial products passing through. And uh, one of the, the products for them, of course, was, uh, was the production of myrrh. The city had been designed by Alexander the Great, and from what I read about it, it was, it was a very specific layout of the streets that he wanted. There's uh, all the streets at right angles and, and uh, very well organized. There was also a, a, a street that went from the harbor all the way through the town that was known as, as the Golden Street or the Street of God. And throughout uh, that, that, uh, that street on either side were, were statues to Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And so all the way through, people were reminded that this is, this is who they turned to, whether it was Asclepius, who was the, the so-called god of healing, or Aphrodite, the so-called uh, god of uh, fertility. Uh, each of these they had all along the way to remind them of... Uh, uh, of giving homage. It was also the birthplace of the poet Homer. It was, uh, uh, it was also known that they had a large theater that could seat 20,000 people. And of course, being a Roman city, there was also a place for emperor worship. And to tell you all that to say this, it was a difficult context for the body of Christ. Uh, they, uh, the, the body of Christ would not have been, obviously, in, in, uh, uh, in agreement with those who were worshiping the false gods, the pagan gods and goddesses, or worshiping the emperor, and yet there would have been pressure upon the early church to, uh, to bow their knee, to show solidarity, to show agreement with this other type of worship. And we see that as Jesus writes this letter, he tells them in verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty. He knows their situation. And I, I think that those words to begin with, as, as troubling as they are to hear, the fact that there is a group of people in affliction, I think it's encouraging for us to know that they were not alone. If you remember back in, in chapter one, Jesus described the churches as seven lampstands. Remember that picture? And then the lampstand holds up the light and for the dark world, this is the witness of, that Jesus Christ wants. But he said in chapter one, and we saw last week as well, that he identified with the lampstands, with the churches and said, I walk among them. And so here we see that, that Jesus knows what it is that this church is going through. And maybe you've walked in this week. And maybe it wasn't affliction. Maybe it was something else that was difficult. Maybe there's another situation that's, that's happening in the, in, the, in, in the background or maybe the foreground of your life, something that, that, that even today is quite concerning. I, I think it's encouraging for us to remember we don't walk through these situations alone. That if we belong to Jesus Christ, he is with us. In fact, he tells us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And here we have an example of a church in affliction, in persecution, and Jesus saying, I know what's going on. I know where you are. I know what is taking place. 
And maybe for some of us today, we need that reminder as well. Again, the Christians in Smyrna would have experienced tremendous pressure to participate in in pagan worship and emperor worship that was prevalent there. And it would have had real economic impact. Uh, As we saw even in in the... uh, in uh, the church of Ephesus, that, uh, that there was always a tie between, between economics and, and the faith community. And in their situation, maybe it was the loss of employment, or maybe it was the fact that people wouldn't do business with them because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar, or they wouldn't give the offering to one of these Greek or Roman gods or goddesses. There would have definitely been an impact. Richard Mayhew writes and says, paganism did not mix economically with Christianity. And yet it's interesting that Jesus reminds them that even with their affliction and their poverty, he wants to remind them that they are rich. And I think what he means in this is that there is obviously wealth beyond this world. There is a a, a spiritual wealth that he references even back in the book of Matthew chapter six. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And in fact, uh, there were other passages that talk about what it means to be rich in faith, to have, to have the, uh, uh, the, the, the perspective of, of wealth that is beyond this world and the storing up of treasure in heaven. Down in verse 9, the town synagogue was called a synagogue of Satan. Now that that might sound pretty harsh, right? A synagogue of Satan, to to attach those two words together. But let me remind you what, what, uh, what Jesus is trying to point out is that when there is affliction, when there is persecution, when there is one who is is working against the will of God, that it's ultimately rooted in in the temptation that comes from the adversary. In fact, if you recall, when when Peter was confronting Jesus and Jesus gave him a word of admonition, he told Peter, one of his disciples, he said, get behind me. And what did he say? Satan. And so very similar here. Jesus is just trying to expose what is really behind all of this. And of course, the early church throughout the book of Acts experienced persecution, even from the Jewish community. Many of them, most of them, of course, were were converts from Judaism themselves, and yet there was the conflict, there was the tension. Even Jesus faced this with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So again, he's just reminding them that behind all of this, there is a, a, a greater adversary that is against them. Verse 9 uses the word slander, means that they, they might have been a group that was, that was uh, exposing or turning in the believers of the day to the Roman authorities and causing uh, all kinds of, uh, of, of pressure and, uh, and affliction upon them. In Revelation chapter 2, we look at verse 10 and we see how the Lord wants them to respond. Look, look at verse 10 with me. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, it's interesting that in the midst of this great difficult difficulty that they were experiencing, Jesus gives the words that had been repeated throughout the Bible going all the way back when God was at work uh, with someone or even with a group of people, oftentimes we would hear the words, fear not, do not be afraid. 
And yet again, even in this time, they're being told to not be afraid. God indeed is with them. Now, they were told to prepare for suffering, that the devil, the accuser, was behind the suffering. And then it, it says that they will have 10 days in prison. And I don't know how that strikes you. I mean, it's, it's certainly something that would get your attention. Some might say, oh, only 10 days. That doesn't sound too bad. Um, but that 10 days likely meant a 10-day sentence that ended in death. That, that was in all likelihood what was, what was in, in store for them. Now, some commentators have said maybe 10 days is meant to be more of a, of a figurative sense of a, you know, 10 being kind of a, a perfect number that maybe it's just saying that, that this will be the right amount of time, whatever that might be, um, and looking at it symbolically. But either way, the affliction would be limited from the standpoint of eternity. There would be a starting point and an ending point which is important for us to remember. Also, according to verse 10, the suffering is connected to a purpose. It says that they will be tested. Now, I'm sure that none of us look forward to having our faith put to the test, right? I mean, if we had a sign-up in the lobby this morning on who would like to do that when the service is over, I, I, I don't know that anybody would go through and sign their name up for that, right? Who wants to have their faith tested? Let me ask you, if you look back in your life, and you recognize those seasons and those times where your faith has grown the most. Was it in a time that was difficult or a time that was easy? When you learned more about God and his faithfulness and his character and his ability to bring you through a season, was it a season that was easy or was it a season that was hard? You see, there are opportunities that we, that we have in, the, in the, the crucible of suffering in the crucible of persecution, in their case, that, that bring about growth in faith that we would not ever experience. Now, again, I know we're not looking for it. We're not asking for it. But there are times in which our faith indeed is tested. Peter would write about this in chapter 1 of the book of 1 Peter. Notice how he ties suffering in with rejoicing. Sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, I realize. But look at what he says. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, what happens when those who call themselves people of faith followers of Christ, when, they, when there's a cost for following Christ, you, you, you can then recognize who the followers are that, that truly know him and truly are willing to lay down their lives for him. And that is, uh, that's what was happening there in Smyrna. Now, we know that that took place in the early church, and it certainly is taking place in the global church today. I, I would encourage you to, to, at times, look at what is happening now, of course, we're talking this morning and praying about brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia, and we need to be. And we also have, have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are suffering for their faith as well. And, and I would encourage you to, to visit a website like Open Doors USA. Open Doors does a, uh, it really exists to research where the church abroad is suffering. What is, what is happening uh, to them, how they can, they can bring about resources to suffering Christians. Persecution.com is another resource where you can see what is happening. And, uh, 
uh, over on the Open Doors website, they have a, a list of, of countries. And uh, uh, in 2021, the top five countries on what they call their world watch list were North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. Now, in 2022, from what I saw this week, the major change is, is that Afghanistan is now number one on the list for persecuted Christians, and North Korea moved to the second slot. But in 2021, there were over 4,700 Christians that they know of who gave their lives because of their faith. And there were about 4,500 churches and buildings of Christian ministries that were, they were attacked because of what was taking place inside those buildings. And so we, we know that, that, that it is happening around the world, and it is part of our call to not only be aware and to pray, but also to support the body of Christ however we can. You might ask, well, we, we see persecution happening all over the world. Could it ever happen here in America? Think about that. Do you think it could happen here? Do, do you think there is some of that that's already beginning? Maybe, maybe you have faced that. Uh, sometimes we can, we, can, we can face persecution through, through, uh, uh, through personal relationships of people that, that, that mock or, or tease, or we might, we might get caught up in, in, in policy that's coming out at the, at the workplace or in the society that, that goes against the grain of, 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 of what we believe. Here's what a, a professor at Princeton University named Robert George, this is what he said. He said, the days of socially acceptable Christianity in the West are surely over. The days of comfortable Christian orthodoxy are past. They're over in his mind. Now, he, as a practicing Catholic, recognizes that there is a secularization taking place within the culture that makes it increasingly difficult to be a person of faith. You could probably come up with different examples that we've seen within our own society, within our own culture. And, uh, and when you look back to maybe the, the days in which you were raised or the age of your parents or your grandparents, and you see the shifts that have happened and how at one time the, the, the majority perspective of people was a faith-filled perspective. That's what oriented and guided them. But when that is replaced with something different, and yet you're still the one holding on to a biblical worldview or a worldview filled by, by faith, you see that all of a sudden there's a conflict where you now are no longer in that majority position within the culture. Al Mohler describes what it looks like when there is a moral revolution. He identifies three stages. Let me just go through these quickly. The first one is this. What was condemned is now celebrated. Meaning what, what used to be on the outside is now brought in to the inside. It's valued. It's prized. Didn't used to be, but now it is. Second stage is that what used to be celebrated is now condemned. Third phase is those refusing to celebrate are condemned. Now, do you think he's right on this? Have you seen some of those taking place within our own culture? The, 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 the shifts, the changes, the worldview in which something that used to be prized and, and held high no longer prized. Instead, it switched around. And, and you can come up with all, all kinds of examples, whether we, we talk about the sanctity of human life, 
We talk about the definition. We used to have a very understood, clear definition of marriage. When, when I was growing up in Friendswood, Texas, that was never, never a debate, right? There was never a, a topic on, on, on who, what it meant to be, to be married. You think about gender identity and, 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 and many of the, the challenges that are, that, are, that are being navigated right now as people, people uh, have so many opinions and, and perspectives on, 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 on gender. Now, again, as I mentioned last week, we want to be guided with both conviction and compassion on these, on these issues, right? Uh, we don't want to lose the compassion. We don't want to lose the conviction either. Now, there's another one that I've been seeing recently, and that is uh, the role of parents, you, you do know that there are debates going on in different parts of our country on what the role of parents is in teaching values to their children. Now, I want to tell you, when I grew up, my mom and dad weren't confused about that. <laughs> they, they, had, they had values. They had, they had principles of the home and of the family. And there, were, there was an understanding of what, what that was and, and, and how, how that was meant to be embraced. And you could go beyond that even just to kind of the household rules, right? I mean, all of that was, was, was given to them by God. We, we, we have that as part of our biblical worldview. But, but what's happening outside of that worldview is that there is a, a dialogue and there's even derogatory comments about that perspective that maybe there are people that are better suited other than parents to choose how to teach values and morals to children. Keep your eyes open. Those dialogues, I'm being very serious, are happening. And, and that's part of what this moral revolution is all about. Those are just a few examples. But what happens is when you're on the other side of... of uh, of the movement, you can then begin to experience persecution to some degree. May not be to the level of what is seen, was seen in Smyrna or some of the other countries in the world today, but there are levels of growing opposition. And in fact, I believe that's what Jesus told us to expect. He told his followers at the time, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Throughout the early church, we see over and over again this, this understanding that, that persecution is a reality when following Christ, because there are, there are many, many who will, will come against you. And I just want to tell the young people in the room that you are going to face a higher cost for your faith than either your parents' or grandparents' generations. It's, it's coming, and, uh, and you, will. You, you will. You will pay a price for naming the name of Jesus for living according to those biblical principles that, that the biblical worldview and biblical wisdom give us, you will have to count the cost in a way that your parents and grandparents did not have to. But what's the positive side? I believe there'll be a purging that takes place in the church. I can remember hearing uh, uh, a, a pastor from Russia speaking years ago, and he was talking about what it was like after the... Uh, after communism collapsed in, in Russia. And uh, he was associated with a ministry called the Slavic Gospel Association. And he said, one thing we, we had before communism collapsed is that those that were in the church, it was, it was, it was a pretty serious-minded church because anyone that went there knew that they, they may have to pay a price for attending. And so it was, you know, we, we were pretty committed. There, were, there wasn't a lot of liberalism happening, right? And uh, when people had to, had to give their life. But what he was worried about after that is that, that it would creep in, that there would be, there would be uh, uh, comfort that would come. So I just share that with our young people to say, you, you, you could be the generation 
that is the one that holds up that light on the lamppost. It could be your church and your church experience that truly is the light for a world in darkness. So be prepared, but don't be afraid. That's what verse 10 tells us, to not be afraid. Christ will be with you. In fact, if you look at verse 8, I think it's interesting that there is both the identification that Jesus gives of being the first and the last, but also the one who was dead came to life, meaning that, that he defeated he defeated the grave and he is alive. If you look at uh, in verse 11, it says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So throughout verses 10 and 11, there's this theme of life and death. And for those who are the overcomers, we talked about this last week, the, those who are victorious in Christ, they will not be harmed by the second death. Say, well, what is the second death? Well, there is a first physical death that everyone that is uh, human will experience. That's the first death. What's the second death? It's the spiritual death, the separation from God that is uh, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. There's an old saying that says this, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. And you see what that means. That's why we talk about the fact that one must be born again, Right? You've, you've been born physically, but have you been reborn spiritually? If so, yes, you will face physical death, but you will not face spiritual death. And that's the call to come to Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, the second death is, 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 is able to be overcome. In verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, which is Christ's resurrection. Who is it that shares in it? Those who are followers of Christ. The second death has no power over them. That's the beauty of the gospel for eternity. So we, we don't look at, at the second death with fear. Revelation 21.8 describes the second death as the lake of fire. That is not a death for the followers of Christ. Well, you might ask, well, how did the church of Smyrna do in taking these words well, 60 years after the letter was received, there was a leader in their church. He was known as a bishop by the name of Polycarp. And in 155 AD, which again, he would have been alive because he was in his mid-80s at this time. He would have been alive when this letter came to the church. He was told by the governing authorities to bow down to Caesar and renounce Christ or he would have to give up his life. And here's what he said. For 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The authorities then threatened him. They said, we'll put you in the fire or we'll have wild beasts attack you. And he responded, you threaten me with a fire that burns only briefly. And after just a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. And then he said this, why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. Does he sound like a man who was afraid? Not at all. The boldness of Christ upon him, even as he was afflicted unto death. The word for Smyrna is a timely word for us today. To stand firm, to not give up during times of persecution. Let's keep reading. Pick back up in verse 12, and we now turn our attention to Pergamum. We'll see a similar theme, and we'll go through it quickly but also we'll see a little bit of a difference. Verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, 
Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, that sounds like a place to live, doesn't it? You think they put that on the, on the, on the real estate flyers? Place where Satan lives. Yeah, you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, again, where Satan lives. This church is told also to stand firm and said to not give up during times of compromise. Now, Pergamum was 60 miles north of Smyrna, a little further inland. You'll see it there on the map at the, really at the top of that, of that circle of seven churches. It was not as much of a commercial city, but it was the regional capital of the Roman government. And it also had a temple to Zeus. And it's, uh, thankfully, it's in ruins now. There are still some pieces of it available, but, but some have said that that temple might have even resembled a throne. And so this idea of where Satan lives and just the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the power that came with these false pagan religions. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, again, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And it was probably a reference to the altar of Zeus. Uh, also, there was an altar there to the, to the Roman emperor. And we see that they are commended for not denying their faith. They were standing firm. In fact, this man, uh, this one Antipas who was put to death, uh, tradition tells us that, that he was told if he would just come and sprinkle a bit of incense on the altar of Caesar and say the words, Caesar is Lord, that he could live. And Antipas wouldn't do it. He would not bow his name or bow his knee to the name of Caesar. And instead, he says, Christ is Lord. He was burned to death for not bowing down to worship the emperor. And what is it that Jesus calls him? My faithful witness. He was faithful. But yet in verse 14, we see some who are compromising. Look at it with me. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. We won't go into great detail here, but from Numbers chapter 22 to 25, there is an account that Jesus is referencing. And that is where the king of Moab called upon a prophet by the name of Balaam to come and pronounce a curse over the people of Israel. It didn't work the way he wanted and anticipated, and so he tried another tactic. And so Balaam went to, the, to the, the women of Moab and said, why don't we see if we can convince the men of Israel to sacrifice to the gods of Moab, bow down to their idols and worship, and participate in the, in the sexual immorality that was part of those worship practices. In Numbers chapter 25, it describes a scene where God judges them for that. He judges them for, for turning away from the one true God and, and, and following the, the, the pagan practices, and 24,000 of them gave their lives. And so here, evidently, there is something taking place in Pergamum that's similar, where people are being drawn into the, the pagan rituals, the pagan worship that's drawing them off from the worship of the one true God. And Jesus mentions this and says that there are some that are compromising. But there's also another temptation. You remember the group, the Nicolaitans, we've seen over the last couple of weeks? 
They're there in, uh, in Pergamum as well. It says, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the, Nicolait- of the Nicolaitans. And again, we said last week that this is a group that, that, that tried to hold to the name of Christ, but also tried to, to take a, an approach of syncretism to, to try to bring in some of the teaching and practices of the surrounding culture. And Jesus is saying, no, we don't want any compromise like that. We don't want this approach where, where you bring in uh, what is popular within your culture. Every generation of the church has had the temptation to compromise the truth. Even our generation. We have churches today that feel very convinced that they need to try to make their message more palatable to the world around them. And what can happen is you, you can begin changing the message so that it can acquiesce to the, to, the, to, the, to the needs or the demands, if you will, of the culture. But what happens when you begin to change the message? You lose the message. You lose the message of the gospel. And we're seeing that happen. In fact, Jesus says when this does happen, it's like losing the lampstand, that the church is no longer the church. David Young makes the comparison of those in the days of Moses that were bowing down to a, to a golden calf. You remember that episode where they, they bow down to the calf and you think, how in the world could they be worshiping a cow? Well, do you know what the people in Egypt did? Worship cows. Do you know what the people in Canaan did? They worship cows. And that's what David Young said. Have you ever wondered how cow worship could possibly make sense to the Israelites? He mentions the Egyptians and the Canaanites into whose land they were entering. They all worship cows to get ahead in business, politics, in the neighborhood. Respectable Israelites decided to just join in. When the elites accommodated cow worship, the masses followed suit. If everybody around you is saying that a cow is a god, the social pressure on you to deify cows will be tremendous. What do we have today? I know there's not a lot of cow worshiping happening, but listen to another point that he makes. He says, in the same way, if everybody around you is saying that a man may be a woman, the social pressure will be enormous for you to say that men are women. We see these pressures around us. Alyssa Childers wrote about it in her book, Another Gospel. And she said that what is happening today is that there's a lot of progressivism that is coming into the churches. And she says that that the progressives view the Bible as primarily a human book. And they emphasize personal conscience and practices rather than certainty and beliefs. Certainty and beliefs are kind of off the table when it comes to the progressive uh, mindset. They're also open to redefining, reinterpreting, or even rejecting essential doctrines of the faith like the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, and his bodily uh, resurrection. It's so desperate to fit into the culture that it has to keep changing. And let me just say it this way. What we see happening today won't be good enough tomorrow. Because as the culture continues to move, the church will have to continue to change its message if it wants to be accepted by the culture. And that's the question for us. Do we want to be a church that pleases man or a church that pleases God? That's really the question. Now, the temptation will always be there to want to be accepted by, by, the, by the community around us. But that may not always be the case. Now, again, conviction and compassion. We don't want to lose one or the other, but we have to realize that like so many others, 
throughout the world, and like so many others throughout history, there may be a time when you and I will indeed pay a price, pay a price for the faith that we have in Christ. It's a matter of being prepared, being prepared. Otherwise, it's a, it's a compromising church. Maybe the intent is to be viewed as compassionate or relevant, but it's misguided. Because if the culture is godless and it's based on humanistic frameworks, how could the church ever really be accepted? Unless the church becomes based on a humanistic framework. Has that happened in some cases? It has. It's happened a lot, not just in our generation, but in previous generations. So that's the warning. Well, what word does Jesus have for the compromising church? Look at verse 16 and we'll wrap up here. It says, so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church is called to repent when it compromises. Now, look at that word repent and see it in the, in the light of hope. Because really, it is a hopeful word. It means you have an opportunity to change. You have an opportunity to turn around. And so as individuals or as a church, when we find ourselves in a place of compromise, we don't have to stay there. The Lord says you can come back, repent. Change your mind that leads to a change of action. That's what repentance is all about. And that's the beauty of the gospel is having that opportunity. Now, again, he talks about the sword from his mouth. We looked at this in chapter one. I'll just quickly reference that it's a, it's a word of judgment. That oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think about the good shepherd and we think about that staff and we should, we should think of him in that light. But the book of Revelation identifies Jesus also as one who is the judge, the ultimate judge. And, and here we see the, the symbol of the sword. Even in Romans 13, the sword is used to talk about those earthly rulers who exercise judgment and authority. Now it's being used to demonstrate the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so I think for us to remember that he ultimately will be that last and final judge. And then in verse 17, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So very quickly, let me share with you what some of this is, is referencing. Obviously, we think of manna. We remember of the, the manna that was given to the, the people of Israel while they were in the desert. It was, it was speaking of provision. Some have said there was a Jewish tradition that, that Jeremiah was able to recover some of the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant and that it was, it was hidden before the, the Babylonians attacked and that maybe that's what's being spoken of as hidden manna. Others say, no, Jesus himself is the bread of life and he's saying that I'm the ultimate provision and that, that I will give to you this hidden manna. And yet others even point to the, to the marriage supper, the banquet that takes place later in Revelation. For, for all those who belong to Christ, they will be at his banquet. And that's where they will receive from him. And so what we see, my takeaway on it is, is that Christ provides. That he is the ultimate provider. He will give what is needed to sustain but then it also speaks of giving a white stone. And in, uh, in ancient athletic competitions, if you think about the, the, uh, the Isthmian Games or the Olympic Games, there would be a, 
there would be a, a banquet afterwards. There would be a celebration. And they specifically wanted to celebrate those who were victorious. And so how would they know who had won? Well, those who won the athletic competition at the end would be given really a white pebble that they would hold on to. And then when they went to the banquet later, they would give that, that white pebble as evidence that they had won the competition and therefore should get to be in that part of the celebration for the victorious. Jesus is using the same picture and saying, those who follow me, you will have victory. You will be an overcomer. And yes, there will be a celebration that you will get to be a part of. And in fact, not only a white stone, you also have a new name. Because Jesus says when we come to him, we are new creatures. We are a new creation. That we are now identified as part of the body of Christ, the family of God. And so if, with all that we've talked about today, talking about affliction and persecution and, and compromise, we end here with a call, a call to come to Christ. Maybe you're reading this and you're seeing this and say, I don't know for certain that I have this identity in Christ. I don't know that I do belong to him. This day could be a day for you to turn to him. You can be, we talked about the, that, that second birth, to be born again and to not be afraid of death or specifically the second one. Well, this morning we've seen two things. To stand firm, to not give up during times of persecution and to stand firm and not give up or not give in during times of compromise. And both of these statements apply to us as the fellowship of Wildwood, but they also apply on an individual basis. And so let's take some time and ask God to take his word and apply it to us, to, to guide us and help us through times of suffering or affliction, but to also strengthen us so that, so that we, wouldn't, we wouldn't fall into the compromise that is so prevalent around us, that we could be found faithful to him to his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you gave to these two churches. And Father, as we think back and, and remember what the suffering church went through, we, we realize that there may be for us some very similar elements. And Lord, we know that for certain that is happening in other parts of the world. And so God, we pray for for fellow brothers and sisters that, 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 that truly are suffering, for those whose lives are even at risk when they've gathered together to worship you today. Lord, we know that that's happening all over the world. And we're grateful for the freedom that we have had today. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to worship you. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us that resolve to stand firm and to stand strong. Help, Father, especially our young people as they navigate so much, so many messages that, that go against the grain, that contradict the worldview of, of your word. God, may you strengthen them that they may stand firm. And Lord, we pray for any today that as they think about what it means to be born again, as they think about what it means to be given that new name, that new identity in you, that Father, you would do your work would you draw people unto yourself? Would you give eyes to see and faith to believe that we all may truly escape that second death and not fear the physical and knowing what we have in store for this, that you have in store for us in eternity. 
So Lord, apply your word now. Do your work among us. Help us, Lord, to reflect our faith in you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said.